0: How do you stay optimistic during the most stressful and difficult times? Some may think it's impossible based on their circumstances. But if you train yourself to think positively, this can help you get past any challenges that come your way. Now, you may remember we mentioned Dr. Stephen Southwick, a world expert in resilience, was going to join us this month and talk about this. But then he recommended someone who truly exemplifies the power of optimism. Her name is Deb Gruen, and you will be amazed with what she's accomplished. This 31-year-old has overcome so many obstacles in her life, but what's so incredible is that she doesn't see things that way. To her, positivity and resilience is second nature, and we can all learn something from her story. Welcome, Deb. Thank you so much for being with us for this podcast. Sure,
1: my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Let's start from the beginning. You were born with spina bifida, a severe disability. Some may not know what that is, so I'm going to let you explain.
1: Sure. So I have spina bifida, um, and it means that the signal from my brain doesn't quite get to my legs. It's a physical disability. The way it manifests in me is that it affects predominantly the way I walk and the way I move my legs. I walk with two canes, which assist me, and I wear braces to help me pick up my legs. And so I walk slower than the average person. It's harder for me to get up and down the steps. Um, And again, my gait is not quite normal the way it would be for someone else. You had a surgery
0: the day after you were born. Yes. And a total of five surgeries before you were even five years old. What kind of an impact did this have on you and your family?
1: I just remember waking up, having to learn to walk after that. I had a, like a pink pink crutches that I could use. And it was really important to my dad that I get off of the crutches and I start walking with canes because he wanted me to be as functional as possible and to have the least amount of dependence on crutches or canes as possible in my life. So the the physical therapy after that final surgery it was quite intense. And it just meant that I had to devote everything I knew all my time and my energy to learn how to walk the best I could. Just It was just delayed. My dad was very influential in making sure that I walked. It was incredibly important to him that I never be dependent on anyone. That I could live in New York City, that I could walk up and down the stairs, that I would never be in a building that was on fire and couldn't get out. And so he every day forced me to go out and to practice walking. And it's probably where I get the idea now that to be good at something, you just have to practice by rote force.
0: That really laid the groundwork for your life.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, to this day, even in my work, I just think that the way to become good at something is to continue to practice.
0: Tell us about what it was like growing up with spina bifida. I'm sure you faced a number of challenges.
1: Yeah, like I said before, it affects how I walk. I can't run. So, you know, in elementary school, we would have gym class and we would play kickball and we would play tag and we would play all that stuff. So they had to have special rules um, or I had special accommodations because I couldn't play with the other kids.
0: Is there a certain instance that stands out for you that really took a mental toll?
1: When I was in um, middle school, we had an annual field trip to Washington, D.C., and it's a lot of walking at first the school was resistant about my going and initially said no the only way for you to go is to use a wheelchair which made me very upset because I fought my entire life to be out of a wheelchair and then I decided that I was just going to prove them wrong and walked up to the top of the Lincoln Memorial with the other kids and back down again and that was the last time the school ever told me I wasn't going to be able to do anything again.
0: You weren't willing to give up and your parents weren't going to let you give up either.
1: Right, exactly. Like saying, no, I can't do this was just not an option in my house and is not an option in today's world either. I always knew I would be successful, but I, I don't think I would have imagined what I've accomplished.
0: Do you think that in a way your disability has helped you become successful?
1: Um, it certainly shaped who I am as an individual. It taught me to work hard. It taught me to move on. It taught me that, you know, you're going to encounter some challenges in your life and you're going to have to figure out how to deal with them. But It's just kind of part of who I am. How did you get involved in athletics? Who
0: pushed you in that direction?
1: So I started swimming because my sister was swimming. And then I I went in the water and was like, wow, I don't need any support in the water. And then I would start playing tag with other kids like sharks and minnows. and was like, I'm quite good. (laughs) And then I started like practicing more and more. And then once I started swimming year round, so everyone had to try out for the team. And there was a coach there. His name was Rick Lucan. And I, uh, I tried out and he would be like, Deb, can you do a 25 fly? And I was like, of course I can do a 25 fly. So I did that. He's like, can you do backstroke? Of course I can do backstroke. So I just I did that. And then he said, well, I see no problem with you on this team. Like you can keep up. It's fine. You're not in any pain. Like this is good for you. And, and you should. And Rick was really my first coach And he pushed me very hard, too. And I think he enjoyed, too, the fact that I had a disability because it's a challenge for a coach, too. So um, I started swimming competitively when I was 7 or 8 years old. But it wasn't until I was, like, 11 or 12 that I found out about Paralympic swimming. So the Paralympics refers to the Olympics for people with disabilities. And when I found out about it and I looked at the times, I was like, oh, I qualify for nationals. I'm good. So I went to my first disabled swim meet and was very successful. And then I went to Paralympic trials that year in 2000. So I was 12 years old at the time, and it was in Indianapolis. And they were the Sydney trials. And I got there, and I did well, but I didn't make the team. And I was shocked because I was like, oh, I set, like, an American record. I won all my events. Why didn't I get picked for the team? You know, like, what happened? And I didn't know at the time, but Paralympic swimming is very fast. And what I didn't realize is that, okay, it's great that I'm good in the United States, but in order to qualify for an international meet means I need to be very fast in the world. And this was the first time it dawned on me that, like, Paralympic swimming is really serious. So me swimming six times a week just wasn't going to cut it. So, I got back from this meet and I was like, okay, I need to start doing doubles and I need to start cross training and I need to devote my life to qualifying for the Athens team. And for me, too, it wasn't enough to just get selected for the team I wanted to medal. It's great because you have this goal and that's all you think about and it's worth it.
0: And because of that mindset, Deb earned a bronze medal in the Athens Paralympic Games at the age of 16. She then set a number of national and world swimming records and became a bronze
1: medalist again at the next Paralympics in Beijing. That was incredible to me. Like, wow, like I just had the race of my life. Like, it doesn't get any better than this. It was like the true example of your hard work pays off. I I hate to use cliches, but that was kind of it. I mean, I dedicated myself after Athens to doing as well as I possibly could. When I looked at colleges, like the first thing I said to the coach when I was meeting with them was like, I want a medal in Beijing. Like I knew I was not going to win the 100 meter breaststroke, just given the classification system. So it was important to me to know, like I'm not going to win a gold medal, but I do think I can medal. How did optimism contribute to your athletic success? I mean, I always just wanted to do better. I wanted to go faster, right? Like, I just wanted to beat the person next to me. I wanted to be on the medal stand.
0: When it came to academics for you, you had the same mindset as you did in swimming. Oh, for sure. You wanted to push yourself. Yeah. And set tremendous goals.
1: Yeah. And I don't sit there and think about goals. Like, okay, like, I have to get X on SAT in order to do this. You tend to be good at the things you like. So I, if I liked a class... I just pushed myself in it because I liked it. You know, I, I wanted to do well. Like, I was interested in it. My goal in high school was to do well. That that was it, point blank, to do well. And when they told me, like, you know, you should consider Yale, you should consider Harvard, you should consider MIT, I was shocked. Like, it, are you really talking to me? Like, is this, are, are you serious? Like, I, I never thought of myself as that good, like, as bringing something to the table that Yale would want. You really did have an amazing track record, though. Valedictorian of your class. You had the highest GPA in your class. Yeah. Went on to Yale University and Ivy League School. What kept you going? I liked what I was doing. In fact, I loved it. I liked my classes. I liked my friends. I loved my swim team. And you went on to achieve even more success after Yale.
0: Georgetown for Law School. Yeah. And now you work at a firm here in New York City. So you've really beat the
1: odds. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I guess. Again, like I don't even know what odds were against me. I just continued on a path and went for it.
0: Optimism really did get you to
1: where you are today. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you're up against, you know, a really difficult problem. And I have every day I go to work and I have really hard challenges. You know, if, if you go in with an attitude of being like, I can't do this that's not great. You're sour to work with. People don't want to help you. And so I would say that having a good attitude is It's incredibly important for you and also the people that you work with, because it makes others want to help you too.
0: I want to go more in depth and talk about the science behind optimism. Dr. Dennis Charney, who you know, his research is the basis of this podcast. And it says in order to be resilient, you need to have realistic optimism. You're very realistic when it comes to optimism. Explain that.
1: I think the greatest example of that is to know your limitations. Like, when I went to China a few weeks ago, I decided, like, I have to walk the Great Wall. Like, I'm going to do this, you know? It's, be realistic about it. In other words, I'm not going to walk up and down because I'll be too exhausted the rest of the trip to really enjoy it. So, again, like, I knew I could do the Great Wall, but going up and down wasn't a great idea for me. Um Going in when I was swimming, right, like, I knew I was not going to win the 100-meter brushstroke, just the, given the classification system. So it was important to me to know, like, I'm not going to win a gold medal, but I do think I can medal. So, again, just being realistic about it. And that's good because it, it can also save you, I, I would expect, from a lot of disappointment. Exactly, because the research shows you should know when to cut your losses
0: and focus on really what's solvable and achievable.
1: Yeah, exactly. And how do you do that every day? yeah, sure. I mean, one example, right? If you have a deadline for something and and I'm not great at this, but you know, giving someone a realistic deadline of when you can give it in, I tend to be about two hours after I say it. <laughs> but uh, that I would that's kind of you know the example. you have way too much to do, and so you have to prioritize and think about what can I reasonably get done in this amount or period of time. The science says you shouldn't be excessively optimistic
0: or unrealistic because then you're not prepared for challenges or possible
1: failure. Yeah. I I think I would agree with that. Um, My parents were very realistic about what I could and what I couldn't do. And I think I've continued to hold that because, like, I knew I was never going to go to the Olympics, right, and win a race against, like, um, the Michael Phelps equivalent. Or I knew that I was not going to be the best swimmer on the Yale women's swim team because I can't kick. But I did identify things that I could do well at, and I think that's very important to my success.
0: What do you want people to take away from your story, from your life journey?
1: I don't really consider myself as a teacher for others. What I would hope that people do is, you know, find what they like, identify something that they, you know, is within the realm of possibilities that they can do, and just go do it don't listen to the person who tells you you can't go on your field trip when you're in middle school because it's up a flight of stairs. That's ridiculous. You know, or or that you can't be good at a certain subject. That's crazy. Or, you know, just find what you like and, and practice.
0: You didn't let your disability dictate your life and your future. But what about those who
1: might have disabilities, who don't have this positive outlook? What would you tell them? To others in my position or not, I would tell anybody to just find what you're passionate about and go do it, disability or not. That is what I would say if I walk back into my office right now to anybody on that team.
0: What's next for you?
1: <laughs> so I um, I think I'll stay at my firm for a while. I'd you know, like to be in a position of leadership someday, and then afterwards to transition to public service. Well, I believe that you're going to do it because when you set goals, it
0: seems like you accomplish them. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you. And I know that great things are in store for you. Deb Gruen, proof that optimism can help you overcome adversity and accomplish great things. That's just one of the 10 resilience factors we've focused on so far in this series. It's been a fascinating journey, and we're excited to announce that Road to Resilience is expanding. Starting next month, we'll be going beyond the resilience factors to bring you stories and insights that you can use to thrive in a challenging world. From fighting burnout to understanding how trauma can impact families across generations and building resilient workplaces. And as always, we'll focus on the science behind each topic. I also want to introduce our new host. His name is John Earl and he's creating these episodes. Stay tuned, he'll be here in February. Check us out on iTunes and remember to subscribe, review, and rate us.